Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, completely free with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy what you hear, we would greatly appreciate it if you would follow or subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Please note that Season 4 involves sexual assault and other charges of criminal violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this podcast from the True Suspense Collection is Body of the Crime. Here is Episode 2, Deja Vu. In the days following the disappearance of Tyler Thomas, as searchers came up empty, the community at Peru State College in Nebraska became increasingly somber. Many had thought Ty would turn up quickly, but that hope had faded. Josh Keedle, one of the students who, on their way back from the movies, were among the last to see Ty, put it this way. It really didn't sink in until I seen, like, her family crying outside the hallway. Then it was like, wow, this could be serious. Ty's friends and classmates simply did not know what to think. Ty's friend Chloe reflected the response of many when she told reporters, It's better when we're around people, but when we're alone, it's, it's hard to deal with. I'm lost for words right now. I really am. The president of Peru State... Dr. Daniel Hansen was meeting daily with students to help them sort through rumors, express concerns, and mostly to share their pain. Our students know each other. If they didn't know Ty well, they knew who she was. Uh, they knew which classes she was in, and, uh, and they miss her a lot. College officials increased the security presence while urging students not to walk alone at night. The college also brought in additional counselors and encouraged residence hall assistants to initiate contact with individual students to gauge how they were doing emotionally. A great many people on campus and around the area turned to prayer. Here is just a sample of Facebook posts that appeared in the early days after Ty's disappearance. From Debbie Lynn Elwood Barber, quote, Prayers and love go out to the family of this precious girl. I work with her grandma. Unquote. From Rita Draper, quote, Tyler is in our prayers. Please bring her home safe. End quote. And from Aaron Dietz, a student living at the so-called baseball house, quote, God bless the Thomas family. We are anxiously awaiting Tyler's return. She has finals to complete and a Christmas break to enjoy. Many participated in prayer vigils. Pastor Tiger Moses from a church in nearby Auburn 
did his best to provide comfort and hope while not ignoring reality. There's no magic words that's going to fix this kind of situation, uh, but whatever we can say to express that we care, that, that we're here for them, that's all we can say. For us, there's, there's always a chance that uh, until we find her that she's going to be able to return, and so we need to keep that hope alive uh, until, until we know otherwise. Those close to Ty refused to assume the worst. Meanwhile, in an attempt to piece together what had happened, law enforcement conducted interviews with a number of people, mostly students at Peru State who knew Ty and saw her on the night she disappeared. Nebraska State Patrol investigator Anthony Saddlefield, at one point in the days following the disappearance, came across many students gathered at the student center, and he asked generally for them to tell him where they had already searched and what they knew about Ty's disappearance. Josh Keetle was first to step forward, and other students chimed in. Investigators learned details of the party hopping and of tempers flaring as Ty had confronted some of her friends whom she'd accused of abandoning her at the baseball house. By all accounts, Ty appeared to have been headed back to her dorm when she reported through texts that she had become lost. And remember that surveillance video showed Ty had made her way within a literal stone's throw from the dorm. Police made sure to separately interview, among others, all of those who had spotted Ty when driving back from the movies. Josh Keetle, Jerica Benavides, Jacob Aguirre, and Geraldine Sunderman. On Saturday, December 4, one thing they learned from their interviews was that the group had picked up marijuana and planned to hang out and smoke it after returning from the Harry Potter film. But circumstances changed, and that plan was never carried out. Josh explained to police that after arriving back at the campus, he went to his own room in the dorm because he wasn't feeling well and needed to use the bathroom. His friends confirmed that after waiting some time for Josh to come smoke, they received a text from him shortly after 2 a.m. saying, quote, My stomach is killing me. I'm shitting my guts out and throwing up, unquote. And so they never did have their pot, though by about 2.45 a.m., Josh had recovered enough to text one of the friends he was going to take a ride and asked if she wanted to come but she was already asleep. What all four of the students were clear about was that they never saw or heard from Ty after they briefly passed her in Josh's car as she was walking in the direction of her dorm. As you may recall from episode one, from his nearby room in the same dorm, Josh later thought he heard voices coming from Ty's room and since he had already learned from Ty's friends Jade and Chloe that Ty had gone missing, he called Jade and asked her to check out Ty's room. But Jade found only Ty's roommate there. Fast forward to late on Wednesday, December 8, five days after Tyler Thomas was reported missing, 
local news in Nebraska gave word of a dramatic development. Now the breaking details tonight in the disappearance of a Peru State College student. School officials tell KATV News Watch 7 the Nemaha County Sheriff has made an arrest in the case. One person taken into custody for false reporting and tampering with evidence. Right now that person is not being identified. It is important to underscore that the arrest was not for causing harm to Ty or even for any involvement in her disappearance but rather for lying to investigators and tampering with evidence. But why would someone have lied, and why would they have wanted to destroy evidence? To answer this, we need to look at the timeline of interviews with students, and with one in particular, that took place following the initial ones on Friday and Saturday. On Sunday, December 5, one of the investigators visited with Josh Keedle in his dorm room to follow up on his interview of the previous day. He asked Josh to provide a written statement detailing his activities from 5 p.m. on Thursday, December 2nd, until he went to sleep in the wee hours of December 3rd. Josh readily complied and his written statement was basically consistent with what he had told the state trooper the day before. The investigator then asked Josh a few questions about his relationship with Ty. He told the investigator that he and Tyler Thomas really didn't get along very well. When asked where he thought Ty might be, Josh replied that he assumed she was in Omaha and was fine. The following day, Monday, December 6, investigators conducted a recorded interview with Josh in which he generally recounted the same version of events that he'd provided previously. However, little did he know that they had gathered a bit more information. When investigators asked Josh whether there was a reason he would have left campus around the time Ty had disappeared, Josh denied leaving his dorm room at all. They then asked him whether there was a reason that he would be on surveillance cameras outside of the dorm complex, and Josh then recalled that he went to his vehicle to get change for a vending machine at one point. Later, when asked about his cell phone's satellite location, Josh admitted that he left his dorm around 2.30 a.m. on December 3 and drove to the Missouri River to smoke marijuana. He also admitted driving back to the river the next morning again to smoke. But Josh repeatedly denied seeing Ty on either of the times he went to the river. When asked why Ty's phone would be showing it was located at the river, Josh said he had no clue. He posed a question to investigators. If he had seen Ty at that point, would he have picked her up? Josh answered his own question. Probably not, as the two of them, quote, didn't kick it, unquote. They didn't particularly like each other. Josh told law enforcement that if they wanted to check his vehicle, he would gladly unlock it and they could bring their tracking dogs and search the SUV. 
He was also asked why Tyler might have gone missing. His response was, quote, I think she did this at first for attention, but now I can't say that because of the magnitude it is, unquote. On Tuesday, December 7, law enforcement conducted another recorded interview with Josh. They told Josh they had obtained additional information through their investigation which raised concerns about the timeline he had provided. When pressed, Josh insisted that he had not been with Ty the night she disappeared. But, eventually, he remarked, quote, You're not going to believe me, man. Unquote. When investigators assured Josh that they would believe him, Josh said, quote, Okay. Here's what happened, unquote. Josh proceeded to tell the officers that during the early morning hours of December 3rd, as he was driving to the river to smoke marijuana, Ty, quote, popped out, unquote, of some bushes. He led her into his vehicle, and she accompanied him to the boat ramp at the river where they smoked some pot. Josh said that Ty appeared to be upset, and that she told him about having an argument with her friends earlier that night. At some point during their conversation, Ty asked Josh for a ride to Omaha. Josh said he initially refused, but Ty said she could, quote, do something, unquote, for him if he agreed to take her to Omaha, and, by Josh's accounting, she began rubbing his crotch. According to Josh, Ty refused to have any sex with him other than that she was willing to perform a, quote, hand job in exchange for a ride to Omaha, and that he agreed. Josh said that after this sexual encounter with Ty, he walked to the edge of the river to smoke. It was then that Josh decided he did not want to drive Ty to Omaha after all. When he told Ty this, she became angry. According to Josh, Ty ran toward him, started hitting him, swore at him, and threw her phone at him, as he stood near the river. Josh stated that he grabbed Ty's wrists and told her to quit playing, but that Ty screamed at him and threatened that she would tell the police that Josh had raped her. Josh said he offered Ty a ride back to her dorm, but she refused to get back into his SUV. According to Josh, he left the river without Ty, and she was still screaming at him as he drove away. Josh maintained in the interview that he was worried that Ty would make good on her threat to accuse him of rape. So when he got back to his dorm, he showered to get Ty's DNA off. Josh told officers that after the shower, he decided to go out looking for Ty. He drove back to the river and walked around the area north of the boat ramp with a flashlight, yelling her name. 
when he did not find her near the river, he drove to a nearby graveyard, but did not find Ty there either. Josh said that he grew concerned about his own potential criminal liability and whether he could be charged with homicide if Ty, quote, comes up frozen to death, unquote. So Josh said he used his cell phone to research possible scenarios, which he described in his interview as including, quote, what if her body ends up in the river and my fingerprints are going to be on her from where I grabbed her, unquote. And he also referred to other, quote, forensic evidence. Josh posed a question about whether he would be held responsible if her body ended up in the river or if she was found frozen. He expressed regret that things had not happened differently. And when asked what might have happened to Ty, Josh speculated. What you're about to hear is from the recording of the interview with investigators. The sound quality is poor, so I'll read back what was said after playing. What Josh Keedle said was this, quote, I almost wish I would have physically put her in the car and faced whatever she said I did. Somebody else going down the road could have seen her walking and, expletive, took her. She was drunk. Maybe she fell down somewhere and broke her leg and, expletive, froze to death, unquote. When asked during this December 7 interview whether his DNA would be found on Ty's body, Josh said he had put his hand down the back of Ty's pants during the sexual encounter. And when asked whether Ty's body would show any injuries, Josh responded that Ty may have bruises on her wrists or elbows from where he had grabbed her. Josh then remarked that it would be, quote, a lot different, unquote, if they found her body and discovered she had been stabbed or shot. Officers decided to take Josh to the Missouri River, and he showed them the area where he and Ty were together. Deputy Chris Baker of the Nemaha County Sheriff's Office was one of the officers who went to the river, and he reported seeing, quote, tire marks consistent with the same tire tread, wheel base, and wheel width of Josh Keedle's Ford Explorer SUV, unquote. The deputy reported that his observations of the tire marks seemed to indicate that, quote, the vehicle backed up to the river, and there appeared to be visible drag marks leading from the tire marks to the edge of the riverbank and down the bank entering the river, unquote. Josh's explorer was seized by law enforcement to search and analyze for evidence. It would later emerge that 26 types of items were seized from the SUV, including a swab of a, quote, visible stain on the passenger door, a stained blue foam pad, soil samples, trash bags, zip ties, 
and a variety of tools. That same day, Josh Keetle readily consented to a search of his dormitory room. Monty Lovelace, an investigator with the Nebraska State Patrol, conducted the search. Investigator Lovelace seized clothing that Josh claimed he was wearing the night Ty went missing, including blue jeans, a black long-sleeved shirt, gray hoodie, and brown shoes. Meanwhile, interviews with other students turned up additional troubling information. Jason Rodriguez, who lived at the baseball house, told investigators that he ran into Josh at the student center on Saturday, December 4, whereupon Josh explained that he was being investigated for marijuana and had a, quote, dirty gun, unquote, in his car. Josh asked Jason to go get the gun from Josh's SUV and hide it somewhere at his house, but Jason refused to do so. Seth Sikora, a roommate of Josh, told investigators he had been away in Lincoln, Nebraska from December 2nd to December 6th. Seth reported that when he returned to his room that Monday, Josh was there and explained that he had told police investigating Ty's disappearance that he had been with Seth on the night in question and that if police questioned him, Seth should just tell them he and Josh were together that night. Law enforcement took stock of all they had learned. They still did not know where Ty was and whether she was alive or dead. Clearly, however, suspicion now fell on Josh Keetle. So it was that the man they arrested on Wednesday, December 8th, the day after their last interview with him, was Josh. He had lied to investigators in their initial interviews about his whereabouts in the course of the night in question, and he had lied about whether he had seen Tyler Thomas after he and his passengers had spotted her on the way back to campus. This explained the two misdemeanor counts of lying to law enforcement. Nemaha County Prosecutor Louis Liguri put it succinctly. He started out with one story and changed it. But they wanted a felony charge as well and decided the fact that Josh admitted having gone back to his dorm to take a shower to get rid of Ty's DNA that might have been on his person would allow them to add the felony charge of tampering with evidence. The next day, Thursday, December 9, when the Nemaha County Sheriff's Office addressed the media, they described Josh Keedle as, quote, a person of interest, unquote, in the disappearance of Tyler Thomas. The county prosecutor declined to call him a suspect in Ty's disappearance or to say if more arrests were contemplated to happen soon. The matter was still considered a missing person case. The public began to learn more about Josh Keetle as information trickled out. He had recently been charged with a misdemeanor count of criminal mischief in Nemaha County Court for damaging a door and lock at the college. 
finding he had forgotten his key when he arrived back at his room one time on October 29. Josh kicked down the dorm room door, causing between $200 and $500 in damage. He had not yet entered a plea in that case. Josh Keetle had previously been convicted in a Dodge County, Nebraska court in November of the previous year for a theft at a storage unit. A judge fined him $200 and ordered him to pay $320 in restitution. The Nemaha Sheriff's Office also announced that Josh had now been suspended from, and for unknown reasons that we'll talk about in the next episode, so was the director of campus security, Les Stonebarger. Word also leaked out that Josh was actually 29 years old and mostly failing his classes. Meanwhile, law enforcement obtained video surveillance footage from a bank in the town of Peru showing traffic on 5th Street during the early morning hours of December 3, 2010. 5th Street connects with another street that leads to the boat ramp at the Missouri River, where Josh said he had left Ty. At 2.09 a.m. and again at 3.15 a.m., the video showed Josh's Ford Explorer traveling southbound on 5th Street toward the Peru State College campus. Later on that Thursday, December 9, as word spread about Josh Keetle's arrest, an 18-year-old woman, identified in court records only by the initials KJ, contacted the Nemaha County Sheriff's Office, who then brought in the FBI as well. According to KJ, who had been visiting a friend that was a student at Peru State, Josh had ordered her to have sex with him on Halloween, just over a month before Tyler Thomas went missing. She claimed he threatened her life if she refused. KJ did not know who her attacker was until she saw Josh's picture after his arrest for lying to investigators in connection with Ty's disappearance. According to the law enforcement affidavit for his arrest, KJ told FBI agents that Josh had implied he could throw her in the Missouri River as part of the threat. Five days after KJ first contacted law enforcement, on Tuesday, December 14, Josh Keetle was charged in Nemaha County Court with three counts of first-degree sexual assault, better known as felony rape, false imprisonment, and terroristic threats in connection with what K.J. alleged had happened on October 31st. The arrest affidavit alleged that Josh, in the wee hours of October 31, drove K.J. to a remote spot just outside Peru, near the Missouri River, then ordered her to perform oral sex on him. 
She said she told him no and that she wanted to go back to her dorm. According to the affidavit, Josh told KJ that, quote, she did not have a choice. He referenced their close proximity to the river and threatened her life if she refused, unquote. The affidavit further set forth that, quote, he forced her to perform oral sex and then drove her back to campus where, without her consent, he subjected her to intercourse with him on two separate occasions, both occurring on October 31, 2010. Josh was already being held in the Nemaha County Jail for the charges of tampering with evidence and lying to investigators. Following his new arrest for the more serious charges from Halloween, a Nemaha County judge set Josh's percentage bond at $200,000 in connection with lying and tampering with evidence in Ty's case and $750,000 for KJ's case. That meant that Josh would have to come up with $95,000 to be released from jail. This was not likely to be possible. The new charges would give law enforcement more time to follow leads and further investigate the disappearance of Tyler Thomas. The picture for Josh Keetle grew worse in the course of the next day, Friday, December 10. In Madison County, Nebraska, a warrant for Josh's arrest was filed in a separate matter where he was charged with public indecency for an incident reported in April in the northeastern Nebraska town of Norfolk. According to a police affidavit, when Josh was living in Norfolk, where he was attending Wayne State College, another small Nebraska institution, he stopped his vehicle next to a young woman as she walked through a parking lot. Josh allegedly offered the woman as much as $1,500 for sex and exposed himself to her. But, for now, Josh would remain behind bars in Nemaha County for the more serious rape and other charges there. There was widespread disbelief that a 29-year-old man with Josh Keetle's background had been able to become a student at Peru State. On CNN, Nancy Grace put it this way in a December 15 broadcast. What I don't understand is why a 29-year-old man with sex assault incidents in his past is allowed to live in the dorm. That's a good question for the authorities at Peru State College. With the search for Ty Thomas having been suspended as of December 15, Josh Keetle was kept in jail through Christmas and the beginning of the new year, January 2011. On January 7, a preliminary hearing was held in Nemaha County Court regarding KJ's allegations of rape and the charges related to that. The purpose of a preliminary hearing is for the prosecution to show that enough evidence exists to force the defendant to stand trial. In some ways, the preliminary hearing bears resemblance to a trial. 
the prosecution can call witnesses and introduce evidence, and the defense can cross-examine the witnesses. However, the defense cannot object to using certain evidence, such as hearsay, and the prosecution is allowed to put on evidence at a preliminary hearing that could not be put before a jury at trial. At the January 7 preliminary hearing, 15 of Ty's relatives were in attendance and watched as Josh Keetle was led in wearing an orange jail suit with his hands in shackles. They sat behind him. While Josh showed no signs of emotion, some of Ty's relatives openly sobbed. Nemaha County Attorney Louis Liguri called two witnesses, the primary one being FBI Special Agent Susan Blish. Agent Blish had been investigating the case and had interviewed KJ as well as others at length. The special agent testified as to her understanding of what happened early in the morning of Halloween. KJ and the friend she was visiting at Peru State attended an off-campus party starting late on the night of October 30. At some point, her friend decided to leave the party, but arranged for Josh to drive KJ back to the dorm. At around 2 a.m. on October 31, according to Agent Blish, KJ asked Josh to drive her to the dorm. Josh agreed to do so, but asked her if she wanted to get high down by the boat docks a couple of miles away. KJ said okay, and off they went. Once they arrived by the river, they shared a bowl of pot. When finished, Josh allegedly said, quote, Since we're here, we might as well get to it, unquote. When asked what he meant, Josh told KJ he wanted her to perform oral sex on him. After she responded no, he threatened her by saying he had a gun under his seat and he would use it and throw her body in the river and no one would know what happened to her. Weighing some 300 pounds or more, Josh made clear to the petite woman that he could easily overpower her. Though KJ initially put up a struggle, she eventually relented and did as Josh ordered while he very forcefully held her down. Afterwards, Josh indicated that he wanted more. In fear for her life, Agent Blish testified KJ tried to act friendly. She suggested that they could go back to her friend's dorm for more fun. K.J. had described it to Agent Blish as, quote, survival mode. Josh liked the idea of going to the dorm, and Agent Blish testified that surveillance cameras showed the two of them arriving there at around 3 a.m. that Halloween morning. K.J.'s friend was not in her room, and Josh closed the door behind them. At this point, he said to her, quote, you know what's going to happen now, unquote. He proceeded to rape KJ twice over more than two hours 
wearing a condom both times. Josh Keedle was represented by Alan Thankhauser, who called into question whether K.J. was an innocent victim. He suggested that when the two had arrived at the boat dock, K.J. told Josh she wanted $1,000 for sex and $200 for oral sex. As attorney Thankhauser put it, quote, her college was expensive and she wanted the money, unquote. In cross-examining Agent Blish, he asked, Did she tell you she wanted $1,000 for her services that night? The agent responded in the negative. Attorney Thankhauser posited that what happened was entirely consensual, and that, indeed, K.J. had looked in Josh's wallet for money before suggesting they go to the dorm. The judge heard enough at the preliminary hearing to be convinced that the prosecution at least had a case. He ordered that Josh Keetle be bound over on three charges of first-degree sexual assault. However, the doubts raised by Alan Feinkhauser at the hearing would not be the last time questions would emerge about K.J. The case was very far from open and shut. As we'll see, troubling new evidence would later come to light. News of the preliminary hearing, and especially Agent Blish's testimony, was heard far and wide around Nebraska. It helped shine a new spotlight on the disappearance of Ty Thomas, given the startling similarities between K.J.'s story and Josh's admissions about taking Ty to the same boat ramp on the night she went missing. And it convinced someone else, who had long kept quiet, that she needed to come forward at last. It turned out that in addition to stints at Peru State and Wayne State Colleges in Nebraska, there was yet another school Josh attended and from which he never graduated. He had once been a student and briefly on the football team at Midland Lutheran College. The young woman, whom we previously identified as Julie in the prologue to episode one, decided it was time for her to speak up about Josh Keetle, the man who had raped her in the room of his roommate when she was 15, back in 2008. And Julie had a witness. Join us next week as we follow Julie's case, find out more about Josh and KJ, and see what happens as frustration builds over the lack of charges for Josh in connection with Ty Thomas's disappearance. Stay tuned for Body of the Crime Episode 3, Justice Delayed. Body of the Crime is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.
If you like what you hear, please help spread the word. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you.